This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed, and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Shots? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Shots? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep, but when I looked up he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. Doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day, the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. 
We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. A day's wait is the story. Pick up winner take nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country's ever seen. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about just about everything here on this show, as you have come to know and love. And this next story, well, it's the story of a middle-aged man who discovered he had to make some new starts in his life, and we've all been there, no matter how old we are. Uh, Life presents opportunities, sometimes setbacks, and sometimes you just feel like, well, you need a change. We love these kinds of stories. Bernie Marcus was fired and broke at the age of 49 years old and then founded a, a little company called Home Depot. So life doesn't just have second act. American life can have third and fourth act. Here's our own Alex Cortez to bring us this next story. Christopher Rosso had a design business with a partner until 2008 happened, and they didn't. We had a great couple of years, and then the recession came along, and business completely dried up. And we parted ways amicably because we were friends, and we understood that it was an unsustainable thing for us to carry forward with, you know, basically with two mouths to feed. It just wasn't going to work. We just didn't have enough work to do. And so I left the partnership, and was that a failure because it stopped? You know, I don't think it was. It was... You know, sure, it would have been nice to have it keep going, but we we had these exterior influences on us that we could not control no matter what we did. And we faced the reality of it. So was that a failure? No, it was a setback. And I try not to, and I don't want to say this too flippantly, but, you know, you try to live a life without regret. And I've made a ton of mistakes in my life, either with business, with relationships with people, with a, a friendship that's gone bad for whatever reason, be it ego or stubbornness or misunderstanding. And, and I don't like to regret them. I like to learn from them. So it's, it's tough to say, you know, what's failed, what's not fail. It's, it's, there is no failure. It's, it's, a, it's a constant recalibration of priorities and, and saying, okay, how do, we, how do we move from this, this one thing that looks like a negative, how do we make it turn into something that is different and, and fix it? So I started my own one-person construction company, working from one room in my house and hiring subs to work with me. But back then, I didn't have very much work, so I would do, you know, I would work on the job sites. If, if I needed to do demolition or cleanup, I would do it. If I needed to do some framing, I would do it. And, and ultimately, that turned into what, you know, not big, but good-sized small business of construction. So as the construction company grew, I found myself getting really overwhelmed really by this kind of I, I, I called it like an, an, an endless game of whack-a-mole you, you have a problem you you solve it and then you turn around there's another problem across town another job you'd go solve that and then another one would crop up and I, I found myself working 24-7 never seeing my kids being pretty miserable uh, because I had no free time and and constant pressure and for example I had a I had a phone for a while that had a um, the ringtone for an incoming text message was a, was a little voice saying hey which I thought was really funny at first I was like that's really what a text message is it's somebody you know saying to you hey I want your attention so that was my ringtone the tone that announced the notification tone that announced the text message coming in and so you know on the really on the bad days the phone would just go hey 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 as you know, texts from various people would run it, and it would. I would have this visceral reaction to the phone and to that 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 notification tone, where my blood pressure would go up. My I would tense. I mean, and if I was sitting at the dinner table and the phone was in the other room, and you hear it, you know, saying "Hey," you know, I would become distant. And did his wife Megan notice? 
And I knew it. I mean, I, I didn't need her to tell me that, you know, you, you come home from work, you're grumpy, you, you know, on the really bad days, go straight to the bar, make a drink. I mean, this is, these are not good habits to have. You know, it's, it's really hard to disconnect from, especially when you're self-employed, uh, to disconnect from your self-employed life in the design construction business, which is, you know, literally seven days a week, you know, you, we would work for six days, Monday through Saturday. And then on Sundays it would be planning for the week ahead so that you would have all the pieces in the place ready to go on a Monday morning. So it never stopped. And she and I would talk about the fact that I would be distant and grumpy and just a, a general sense of being short tempered and impatient especially raising kids, you know, failure and how you encourage kids to, to learn from their failures, how you encourage kids to, to soak up their successes. So it's not, it's not always a negative. It's also on the positive side where, you know, maybe one of my kids had a, a great outcome on a test or a personal relationship or did something that they were really, really proud of. And I missed it because I was not there or because I was distracted. And, and those are just as bad as, a, as you know, being short-tempered and losing my patience over some petty discussion and creating, you know, uh, an argument because I'm tired and I'm annoyed by the work life and I shouldn't have come home in that frame of mind. That's bad, but, it's, but, but missing the good stuff is just as bad. Missing those, those moments to sort of self-affirm and to say, hey, this is, this is an awesome achievement. Let's celebrate. Those are all things that are time-based and really mental-based where you, you have to be in the right frame of mind. And if you miss them, you miss them. They're gone. So th those, are, those are the things that, that, I, that speak most to me about the opportunities that I missed, both on the, on the negative side and on the, and the positive side, but really especially on the positive side. You know, how many times did I miss... You know, giving giving one of my kids a hug or giving my wife a hug when something good happened because I was distracted by work. I mean, that's I don't want to think about that. That's too depressing. I, I, I hope to find all those moments in the future. This is kind of like that defining moment that comes along and you either take it or you don't take it. And I took it. I said, this is an opportunity, not not a setback. It's an opportunity to reconstruct my life, reconstruct my, my approach to things and say, you know, I've got to focus on doing one thing and doing one thing well. I cannot do all these things at the same time. Um, perhaps that's a, that's a failure on my part of not, you know, hiring the assistant I should have hired. Maybe it was, you know, not being organized enough. I have no idea, but I said, listen, it's time for me to pare down the construction side of the business focus on the drawing side of the business, focus on the project management side of the business, and let's focus on what I love doing, let's thin out the things that I don't love doing, and see if I can make a new start, and also saying, all right, well, at the same time, I'm gonna unwind a business that I've built for over a decade, how do I do this? So it was hard, it was a tough, I don't know, six months, but as it, sort of went along during that period of time and you sort of chip off one thing after the other. I remember it was a day in November of 2018 where the business was sort of officially, it wasn't closed because there was still work to complete and so forth, but it was the day that I said, all right, this is the, the Friday that is going to be the day that we don't take any new work, that it's going to be, this is going to be the beginning of the end. And I remember getting home, it was early in the afternoon, it was like four in the afternoon on a Friday. And I sat down and I said, I have nothing to do. 
this is great. I, 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 it's a Friday afternoon. I'm home early. There's nobody here because the kids were still at school or out or whatever. And I have, I have time to breathe. This is, this is what I have been working towards for the last few months to try to, to get to this point. I can see the end. I can see that this is going to be okay. So that I, I actually called my parents and I said, now what do I do? <laughs> I said, I got nothing. I have no work. So what do I do now? And they laughed and we had a good chat and I sat back down and I think I may have cracked a beer open and enjoyed a beautiful afternoon, which was to me a, a reward. So I like to think of it that that process of that painful unwinding process, which was still going to go on for another several months, frankly, and I didn't know that at the time, but it was it was fine. I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. I could see, all right, this is all going to be okay. I'm going to be able to figure this out. And wow, where could I go from here? This is really exciting. So I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm in a much better place, you know, mentally today than I was three years ago, for sure. And Thanks to, to Megan for for being supportive. Thanks to my kids for being patient with me. And hopefully we'll look back and have a laugh at what a miserable person I was back then and, and, and move on. And you're listening to Christopher Rosso. And I'm not sure if any of this sounds familiar to you, particularly people who own their own businesses. But anybody who's in a high-stress job, that phone's blowing up all the time. You're, as he said, well, grumpy, short-tempered impatient as he put it I didn't have a lot of good habits and he didn't and then he hit that turning point where he just said this has to end I'm not being the person I need to be and that he was missing all this good stuff missing the opportunities to connect with his family and love and live a life it's time to reconstruct my life he said and by the way those are the best times in our lives when we actually feel that feeling and do it. And sometimes and oftentimes it doesn't mean changing a job or changing a wife or changing a family. In fact, that's the last thing you should do. Just pare some things down. Lose control. Take away some responsibilities. When we come back, more with Christopher Rosso. An authentic story, a good story for all of us to learn from. More here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and with Christopher Rosso's story. Let's pick up where we last left off. Let's rewind to when I was in the really in the throes of the construction business. So I remember sitting at my desk in 2017 in the in the shop where we, we operated the cabinet shop and I had a, had a desk in the corner and ran the business out of that. That's where all the trucks came at night and so forth. So by four o'clock in the afternoon, typically the construction work would be done and the guys would go home and then I would have, you know, call it three hours before I would go home at seven o'clock for dinner and, to, you know, see my kids briefly and, you know, start the start back up again. So I would 
was sitting there one afternoon and, and I remember looking at a pile of bills on the desk and some notes from all the job site meetings I had gone to during the day and just this overwhelming stack of paper and stuff. And I was like, I, I, I need to do something different right now. So I turned on the, you know, the word program on my computer and I started to write a story that I'd been thinking about kind of off and on since that summer. I said, you know, I, I love writing. I, I enjoy the process of you know, creating a story. Let me just write a few paragraphs. And so I wrote a few paragraphs and I did that for on and off for maybe a couple of months. And I sort of started fleshing out this story. But, you know, like many things, it, it kind of got pushed to the side as things demanded. I had other things to do that were much more pressing and I couldn't focus on this thing. And so I just sort of, I wrote a bunch of words and I put the story aside. And then the funny thing about the story is that, you know, yeah, I took this opportunity to sit down and write, write a few words down because I kind of wanted to see what it was like to try to write fiction instead of writing, you know, a change order or a proposal just because I needed the variety. So that was in 2017. So when we get to 2019 and the construction business is now closed, um, I'm trying to sell off some of the machinery and the assets and so forth, and now the jobs have been completed, and I've picked up some design jobs, which I was thrilled about. I've had some work. I had some income. I was much more relaxed. And I started picking up this book again, and or with this story. I didn't call it a book yet. So it was it was very much a process that was completely unmeditated. I never said I'm going to sit down and write a novel. I said I'm going to sit down and write a story as a distraction because I haven't I have this thought in my mind. I wonder how hard it would be to put it down on paper. But as a fiction writer, I have you know I have no idea what I'm doing. I still have no idea what I'm doing. I think I was very fortunate that my brain works in a way that I can I see these stories as no different than than a construction project, than a design assignment, where I have to solve for a set of variables in the most compact, efficient, thoughtful way possible. And it's, it, it, I don't know, maybe it's the way my, maybe it's the way I'm wired. I just sort of see it happening in that way. And I'm very fortunate that I'm able to do that because it's been great for the design and construction business. And, and presumably it's pretty good for writing novels as well. Um, but I don't, I don't see it as, you know, this moment in time where it, it, it started something new. I think we make our own moments in time. And, and when we, we can look back on them and say they were defining moments. But when they happen, I don't, I don't think that they're definable at all. I think they just happen. And, and what you make of those moments is really what defines you as a person and what defines your, your career, your life, your family, your love, your whatever. So... I don't know. I look at it with a very, <laughs> with a very uh, vague and, and kind of fuzzy lens. It, there, there was no plan. There was no premeditation to say, I'm going to become a novelist. It was just sort of happened. And I think that's one of the fun things about it is that it just kind of morphed from one thing, which was a diversion. And there, the, the, to say there was no plan is, is, is an understatement. So let's talk about the publishing process. If, if, we, if we dare call it a process, let's talk about the, the publishing, you know, sort of morass at first. And then over the course of the summer of 2019, I got rejection notice after rejection letter after rejection letter, one after the other, you know, kind of dripping in. So it was you know, water torture as these things dripped into my email inbox 
we're going to take a pass, no, and then the four words that were that were repeated a number of times in which I came to dread and which were almost worse than an outright no, those four, four words were, it's a near miss. So, you know, maybe this, this, this isn't going to work out. It's a fun story, but maybe it's just not going to work out. So I took a month away from it and, and sort of walked away and thought about it and talked to my wife about it, talked to my parents about it. Then I told my kids about it because I wanted them to learn the lesson of, all right, well, you know, I just got rejected by a bunch of publishers. I wrote a book and they don't like it. And, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's it's fine. It's There's still things to do in life and I'm not going to worry about it. So, you know, time and, and distance is, is a great perspective builder. So after a little bit of time and distance, I said, you know, I still think there's something here and decided, okay, I'm going to rewrite the story and then I'm going to write a sequel to the story and then I'm going to independently publish these things, which is a terrible plan because it's fraught with risk, but that's what I did because it just seemed like at the end of the day, I'm, I'm writing and I'm creating something out of nothing and you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? It, it, it didn't succeed once. If I rewrite it and I make it better and I, and I show that I have a sequel in me, you know, maybe it, will, maybe it will get some traction and maybe something will come of it. So that became a process of kind of redemption. And I, I had to know where the story would end and what would happen. Because if I had just shelved this thing after being rejected by all the publishers, I think I would always ask the I know I would always ask the question, well, what if I had just given it another shot? So sometimes you, you, you take the risk and say, well, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, in this case, it's a book. I mean, there is no downside. It, the only downside is that people will say, you're a terrible writer. Go away. I'm not going to read your stuff. But there's a lot of upside, too. And the great story in publishing is uh, J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter. So Harry Potter was rejected by 26, I believe, publishers before a company called Bloomsbury. An editor of Bloomsbury had his child read it. And the child was like, I love this. This is great. And then they picked it up and they published Harry Potter. So that was a while ago. So that was before the advent of self-publishing really took off. And self-publishing sort of has a stigma around it, which is going away, I think, pretty rapidly, but it, it still has a little bit of a stigma, and it's better to call it independent publishing. It sounds more professional, but in reality, it's self-publishing. So back when that J.K. Rowling story came out with Harry Potter, self-publishing didn't exist. You just couldn't do it. I mean, you could do it, but it was you, you didn't have... You didn't have the market that you have now with ebooks, with Amazon, with Apple Books, with Barnes and Noble, and, and distribution and print on demand. The technology just wasn't there. So now you can do it. So that's why I stopped at you know ten or twelve or whatever it was. Publishers, you know, the big guys in New York, and said, "All right, I, I'm going to instead of you know pounding the pavement looking for something smaller, I'm just going to go right to the self-publishing realm. We'll see where it goes." And what a story Christopher Rosso is telling. And he's being quite humble because, well, the two debut novels he self-published or independently published were called False Assurances and Threat Bias, both of which, by the way, you can pick up at Amazon.com. Alex read False Assurances and loved it. So did best-selling author James Patterson, who blurbed the book, and it was number one on the Wall Street Journal's list for fiction ebooks. And my goodness, he didn't have a plan, folks. He didn't decide to write a novel. He just wanted to distract himself 
and tell a story. What a great framework to enter any new endeavor. Christopher Rosso's story, a remarkable story of change, adaptation, and in the end, finding the things you really care about and doing them. His story here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick, and Comfortable Blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, in our town here, we have 13 shops. They're all fabric specific. So when you go into a shop, it's gonna have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here, you can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Doan, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world. And every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, when you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins, 
It's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is going to be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're going to take care of them, what are we going to do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the Goodwill, someone's going to go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort, led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008. Market crashed. My kids wanted to, they got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know. It's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really, are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house, it was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here, and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable, and we started machine quilting for people. And Alan is a computer guy, so when he, he bought the machine, he started looking at what quilting was doing online, and it had not yet made the jump online, and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online, and I said, sure, what's a tutorial? And he said, well, I want you to teach people to quilt online. And, uh, and I said, how will people even find it? And he said, we're going to put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's going to be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's going to go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching. People then called and said, hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine. It's my fabric. You can't use it, have it, you know. And they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said, the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now. And maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over. And a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove of the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing! You know, it's the same as, like, you, you get married, and, like, your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years, and it's like, no, we're still really happy, but we know that this, you know, the, you know it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby! Look, it's right there! And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20-year-olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but, like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure 
They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri stars spend so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them, you know, if they, if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the, to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we, are, we have more time and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it, be, it was the center place for stringed cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town and that town became the center for string. It would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. 
But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. That's just the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show and that's love stories death stories, war stories stories about our history and our nation's history stories about sports, the arts you name it and we talk about law enforcement a lot and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country and mostly almost uniformly with honor and with dignity and today we're joined by a local his book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent Adventures, Close Calls and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching their body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact that it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun, French, and Cajun hospitality, their home 
was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking. Game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields, but his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again and then hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups. I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. And you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a, a platitude. Now, let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch, and then all day 
you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down. And when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit. You've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have uh, sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, uh, a terrifying moment, the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head. And it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away. And after that, when you start feeling like, oh, my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close, or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying he really was and is the hero of the book. Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come 
see me at my apartment at our apartment and he came over we had coffee and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit he asked me if i would volunteer to go undercover i had no idea what that meant but it sounded exciting so i said no, yeah and he said well don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters that started my 10-year undercover career you know six years with the baton rouge PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so um, usually uh, I'd get home maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here you get none of these what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report. Some of the cops might even not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Uh, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we – you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. 
and I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw him and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden I whispered, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys and she just kept, I mean, she knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, yeah. which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back, and he pointed to him. We were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it at home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie, be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her, too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories. Here are now American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told, the heroin dealer had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time, you know. So it's like being on the moon, remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dittman, drove out in the undercover car, and agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll, the heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Detman, Jerry Detman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot, 38, to her, her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Dedman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, 
Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital, or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand, and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat. And about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room. And the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here. And they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple of minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes. It was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, Don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on. A tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him, said, Mister, Mister, would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And This happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building. She double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian Mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home, and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what, the, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City, and they're well-known. And that's Mississippi. Right, Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well-known. But they happen to be talking with people in town, and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money, and all of a sudden— They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home and the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of a scam target and then call others to come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies and they're operating over multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in Northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough, who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, but it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look, here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait, man, don't tell him something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they so they <laughs> spread the story. They spread the story that I was uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly, and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that help dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't, oh, don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, we've already gotten rid of it, but there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen, and so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning, I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box, and then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me, and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries, and I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they'd stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload. And they took me out in the country and showed them to me. And we took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals. And one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such and such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the, yep. that's the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got, got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, Corvettes to um, tractor-trailer trucks. In fact, tractor-trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand-new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago 12 hours before and driven down. Nice deal for twenty two hundred dollars. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car for this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. For Whatever that. you do, yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable, because Charlie, you ran every every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly. You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, prosecutor uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going till we got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases. And the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we work. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to can, can to can. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one, from undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up, and he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places, and he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.